So, the title of the message today, you'll see it there on the back of that program, is Hell to Pay. And the the big disclaimer today is, uh, if I, if we do this right, you probably won't sleep well tonight. And there's nervous laughter with that, and I'm only not even half kidding. This is... This is stuff that's in here that's, that'll just it'll mess you up. It's the undiluted, uncensored truth of this idea of God's judgment and God's, God's wrath. Uh, we gave you, uh, every week, we give you an opportunity to kind of read ahead so that you don't hit this, with, not having read or understood any part of this. But we're in, in chapter 15, what Grant just read for us. And then in chapter 16, uh, the... These angels are given these bowls to symbolize the full ultimate expression of God's wrath and God's judgment on the world. And we're not going to go through these in detail today. I'm going to go quickly narrate through there. You'll, you'll see there on your note sheet, it lists out the first six of these bowls of God's wrath. Now, when we do this, we've already seen these. If you've paid attention, if you've read Revelation before... We've seen series of judgments that have already happened. The first series was this scroll, and it had seven seals on it, and they got cracked open, and then something happened. Something bad happened, and it got bad. And you thought, okay, got to the end, and it's done. It's like, yeah, God, not so fast. And then we have seven trumpets that blow, and the same kinds of things happen here, only it's a little worse this time. And now we get to the seven bowls of God's wrath, and it's full and complete. The the literary explanation for this, even historically you'll see this, is this idea of recapitulation. It's this idea of just when you think it's over, goes again. If you've ever seen any of the Lord of the Rings movies, you know exactly what this is, right? Because you get there, the first one, you've been in that theater for what, three and a half hours? And you've seen this movie and they, the ring and like, okay, the, is they, okay, it's over. And you got to come back for part two. And you go through all the craziness of that and think it's finally over. Nope. You're going to come back. And this is recapitulation. We, we see there that they're in, in through chapter 16, there are uh, these malignant sores that get on people is the first bowl there. Then the salt water is completely just jacked up and destroyed. Then the freshwater supplies on the earth are decimated. Uh, The fourth big bowl of God's judgment and wrath is in verse 8, and it's uh, scorching heat. Uh, It's not global warming. It's global warming like global boiling. It's going to be nasty. Uh, the, the fifth bowl of God's wrath is this outer darkness. It says the planetary systems are going to be become impacted. We get to, ch- to, to the end of it in verse verse 12, and it's this thing about the Euphrates River is dried up, and these creatures come out looking like frogs come out of the dragon's mouth, this dragon uh, personified, uh, this one of these beasts of world empires. And what, what happens here, it's demonic-inspired rebellion against God. And then there is a seventh bowl that gets poured out. It's not on your sheet. I wanted you to write it down this way. It won't be up on the screen, but you'll see it in chapter 16, verse 17. It says, And the seventh angel 
poured out his bowl into the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne of the temple saying, It is finished. What happens here? The seventh one, you can write this down, is God saying, Game over. Game over. Now, if you've grown up going to church, if you've been here at Easter, you're going to go, wait, haven't we heard this, it is finished before? You know who talks about it is finished? One of the things Jesus says on the cross, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't do it. You know who does it? John, the very guy who's writing this vision. It's John that records that Jesus says it is finished. We're going to come back to that in a bit. This is what we do with great literature. It, it harkens back to things. It looks forward to something else. It puts hints all over it without giving us detailed footnotes to go refer back like a study Bible would. It just puts it out there for us. And then it talks about this in verse uh, 16 of, of chapter uh, 16. It talks about this great last battle. Uh, and we have films talking about the end of days uh, titled with this name Armageddon. Armageddon. It's actually not the word Armageddon. It's actually the word Harmageddon. If you're a Hebrew person, you, but that's when they say their H's like that, Harmageddon. And it's this idea of there's this tricky part of it. There's no place that really exists called Armageddon or Harmageddon. It's a combination of Megiddo, a place in the Middle East. And then Har is the idea of a mountain or a, or a, or, or something there. It's the, it's the mountain of Megiddo. And it's this place where this big world rebellion is going to come against God. And God's going to come and there's going to be this big final last battle. And it might actually be there on the mountain of Megiddo. And the tricky part with this is as you study people who've studied this stuff like crazy guys have written books on this. There's six different books on it. Say you'll find seven different opinions about what this actually could be. Because the tricky part about it is if you go to where this mountain of Megiddo is. You know the mountains out behind Pachanga where the casino is? That's what it looks like. You're going, you couldn't fit millions of people here in this big massive rebellion. It's, what does this mean? Or is it synonymous with this idea of ultimate rebellion where, where, where God has had a showdown with people on mountains surrounding this area of Megiddo? It's tricky. And I think sometimes with, with prophecy, it's, okay, we know exactly what it's, it says. And then sometimes there's going to be times where we're going to go, after we see it fulfilled, we're going to go, oh, boom, it's all going to make sense to us. Just like when Jesus shows up here, everybody missed it. And you're going, how could you have missed it? Because look at Isaiah chapter six, the virgin will conceive. Isaiah 53 that talks about he was despised and rejected of men. How, how did they miss that? You know why they missed it? Because they were looking forward to it and trying to figure it all out. We look back on that now and go, oh, it all lines up and makes sense. Perhaps that's the case with this. It's not the major point here, but for for those of you wondering about that, perhaps a little bit, this final last battle. Then there's, so it's, it's kind of gory graphic stuff here in chapter 16 of, of judgment and God's wrath. And that's not even the worst of it. Chapter 14. We're going to skip around here to a couple of places. You can... Go back and forth. Chapter 14, verse 10. It says, We must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they've worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark 
of his name. Description of hell. Chapter 16, verse 19. At the end of it, it says here, it says, The great cities of Babylon, the world empires, split into three sections. And the cities of many nations fell on heaps of rubble. So God remembered all of Babylon's sins. And he made her drink the cup that was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. Chapter 19, verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who had worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The old school Bible say fire and brimstone. For those of you that have, were raised in church, fire and brimstone is the idea of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. That's Jesus. And the vultures all gorged themselves in their dead bodies. Chapter 20, verse 10. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it and the earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. This is almighty God now coming in final judgment. I saw the dead, both great and small standing before God's throne. What that means is no one escapes God's judgment in this world. You can pay somebody off if you're rich or leveraged, or you know, people who know people, you can skirt the justice system. There's coming a day, the reckoning where nobody's going to get away from ultimate judgment. It says the books were open, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they'd done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead and death, and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, was thrown into hell. When I read through this kind of thing, you can ask my wife Denise about this a little bit. This week, I found myself on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday this week just feeling depressed, frustrated. This is challenging, difficult, gnarly stuff here. I would have rather skipped it and got to all the good news about the end of no more streets of gold and no more pain and no more suffering. Because when we look at this idea, these expressions of the wrath of God, there's times where I want to raise my hand and go, this feels like an like overkill here. This feels like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Like eternal torment forever. It feels awful. It's the wrath of God in its various forms emerges from God's infinite, settled opposition to evil. But it's not pretty and it's a little gnarly. And when we think of God's wrath, and you've seen movies on this and heard preachers talk about it, we oftentimes see it as God going, I've had it with you, and lightning bolts come, and we're going to zap things down, and it's God actively just coming out to crush and come against evil. And that's sometimes what God does. But often, 
when we see the wrath of God described here in the Bible, it is not God out there going, let me at him. It's in the book of Romans is where we see it described and other places in the Bible it's described like this. It tells us in Romans, we're going to do a series on Romans here sometime in the next two or three years. It says that God's given us ample demonstration of his reality. And not just that he exists, but he's powerful and he's amazing. He's beautiful. Look at everything he's done for us. All these gifts he gives. And he's given us all these gifts, given us signs of his existence in creation. He's given us signs of his conviction in our conscience and our convictions. Because even if you're not a Christian, even if you have no idea what this Christianity thing is all about, you just go, that's wrong. You'll see things go, that's just not right. And he's going to tell us, you know where that comes from? God's put, stamp that into your heart and soul by putting his image within you. So without even being told and being taught out of the Bible, there's right and wrong. You know, there's right and wrong because some things are just right and wrong. And how do you know that? It's not a culturally conditioned thing, despite what sociologists and religion professors in your freshman philosophy class taught you. This comes from God put this in us to know there's some things we just intuitively know are right and wrong, but we get these gifts, we get these things, and instead of worshiping God, who gave us these amazing gifts, it says we instead turn our worship from God to the gifts He gives us. And we basically say to God, "Is thank you very much. We want your stuff, but we don't want you. Go away and leave us alone." We want the kingdom of God but not the king. You know why we don't want the king? Because I'm the king, dang it. I don't want to be running my life telling me what to do. Oh, God, thank you for your stuff. Give me your stuff. I want all your stuff. Just don't run my life. And uh, when that happens, over and over again in Romans 1, it's, it's like four or five times, it says, so when God sees that, sees how, how the human beings he's created, he's given everything to, it says, so here's what God does. And I would expect it to be so God rains down fire and judgment, <laughs> zaps them all out and wipes them all out. That's what I'd do. If people treated me like that after I gave them all that kind of stuff. Like, I'm done with you, pal. Instead, it says, so God abandoned them to do whatever they wanted. God says, you don't want me? Okay. So he, he just pulled back and says, knock yourself out. I'll give you, you can have everything you want. Worship and serve, not the creator, but worship and serve. Consume your life with pursuing everything this world has to offer. And when we talk about hell, there's all kinds of of pictures and, and, and descriptions of it. But the essence of hell is the absolute separation from God. Absolute separation from God. And there's different... Words that are used here in Revelation and used throughout the Bible. Uh, the, the idea of lake of fire, of, of being burned constantly. There's the idea of being, you'll see it in some places, like we're being eaten by worms. It says the worm doesn't die. We're constantly being consumed, eaten by worms. It talks about this idea of a bottomless pit that we're in. And just, you know, a bottomless pit means you're in there and you just keep falling and falling and falling. And then there's the idea of outer darkness. Now, how that works to be fire, outer darkness. And all of those descriptions may be, 
may be actually true. It may be actual fire that burns us and you never die because you're eternal. You're an eternal being. You're never going to die. You're just going to face that torment of worms being eaten alive but never dying, of, of being in a pit where you're constantly falling and never hitting the bottom and of complete outer darkness. And that may be actually those things. And then it may be too, based on this kind of literature, especially apocalyptic literature, that maybe what he's trying to tell us is the, the nature of what separation from God will feel like. And the truth is, guys, I'm, I'm going to say some things here today, and some of you are going to have this idea of, Phew, it's not going to be that bad. And you have to understand what I'm about to describe to you is far worse than being burned alive, far worse than outer darkness in a bottomless pit. We as human beings are bent on, well, we'll shoot America. You are labeled here in the United States. You are a consumer. You know why you're called a consumer? Because you consume. Because we chase everything the world has to offer. We consume, we consume, we consume. Uh, and we're consuming to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. And when you spend your life doing that, God says, all right, let me let you do that what you end up consuming ends up consuming you. It starts to consume you. It starts to take a life of its own. And some of you are going, yeah, I remember that with money or with food and shopping or, or, or debt or whatever it was. It, we, we end up being consumed by what we're, what we're consuming. That could be what he's talking about here. It also this idea of outer darkness is one of the one of the things that is used to describe uh, hell. Uh, turn, keep something here in Revelation. Go back to the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. are the the things that tell us the story of Jesus's life from four different vantage points. John chapter three, one of the most famous verses in the Bible is John three sixteen. You see this up, Super Bowls and the U.S. Open. Somebody's got a poster. John three sixteen. Even people that aren't Christians who, some of you, are, I, I kind of know that. It's not that God's love and his only begotten son or something like that. John 3.16. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. And people like to stop there going, yeah, no judgment. And God wants to save us. God loves us. Absolutely true. We, we miss the whole context of this. Verse 18, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness. More than the light, for their actions were evil. And God says, you love the darkness? There's going to come a day where the common grace of God, Solomon talks about like this, about the common grace of God. He says this, he says, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. People, whether you're a good person or a bad person, Christian or not, experience the light of God being all around us in the world, and even the fact all the Christians here, we don't get it right a lot of times, but the reason the world isn't as dark as it is, Paul's going to tell us this, I think in First, Second Thessalonians, it's because there's Christians here that are shining the light. 
And so it, it takes the edge off of the darkness. But what happens when that all goes away? And the, and, and the goodness of God from just God being present in our world is withdrawn. And God says, you love the darkness so much? There you go. The idea of a bottomless pit is the idea of, of never ending. See, if you get thrown into some place, you finally think, okay, at least, boom, I hit bottom and it's, it's over. And the idea of bottomless pit is this is never ending. You're an eternal being uh, made in the image of God, which means you're going to exist forever. Body, soul, mind, and spirit will exist forever somewhere. In a place where you're yearning and consuming and loving the darkness and never really getting to what you want and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And you would think, well, if I was there, I would scream out to God and repent and say, I'm sorry. And you'd think that's true, right? The truth is, Jesus tells a story about the next life. We're not going to look at it today. I'd encourage you to look at it on your own. In Luke chapter 16, it's a story of a very, very rich guy on on the Forbes top 100 list back in that day. And he said he had such a big, massive harvest. He said, I got to build bigger barns. Today, it'd be like, the banks can't hold my money. I got to move some of it offshore. Filthy rich. He said there was a guy... In the story also, a guy named Lazarus who had, was just a beggar who was nothing, who, who begged outside the gates of this guy's home for something. The guy didn't really give much to him. He says the dogs came and licked his sores. It was just gross and nasty and disgusting. Look at this guy go, ugh. And God looks at the guy and says, there is a reckoning coming for you, pal. And that night he dies and he goes to, the, to hell, the place of the dead, separate from God. And it says, in agony and in torment in hell, he screams out to God or to Abraham on the good side and says, hey, God, Abraham, the person over here, not get me out of here. You know what he prays for or what he cries out for? Could you send that kid Lazarus over here and give me a cup of cold water? Because it's hot over here. The narcissistic tendencies of this guy just get worse in hell. They don't get better. I'm in control here. That, and he goes, hey, Lazarus now is experiencing rest and joy and peace. You're in torment over there. But, but catch this. This guy's in hell and doesn't even occur to him to say, I've been wrong. I was stupid. Can I get a second chance? And I don't know that there's all kinds of theories on this. If someday, if people repent even in the next life, will they be given a second chance? The scripture seems to indicate even if, they, even if God would give them a second chance, nobody's going to. Because all we want, all that guy wants, and all what some of us want, even in the hellish circumstances of our life, is we don't want to get out of hell. We just want God to make hell more comfortable for us. Just take the edge off of this for me, God, because I don't want to yield to you. To be you king of my life? No way. I'm in charge of my life. Send that kid Lazarus over here and take care of this for me. God goes, "Mm." there's no repentance from this. There is a sense of just getting more hardened and more cynical and more, again, spiraling down. There's no one under God's wrath who doesn't choose 
to be there, either actively or passively. C.S. Lewis said it this way, there's two kinds of people in eternity. Two kinds of people. Over here, the people who looked around and said to God, thy will be done. Over here, people who looked at themselves and talked to themselves and said, thy will be done. Somebody's will is going to be done. You can say to God and submit to God and say, it's your will and I will submit and follow you. Or you say, no, what? I'm in charge of my life and God goes, then I'll just give you everything you ever wanted. And you're going to get, get it undiluted and uncensored. You'll see how despicable and evil and terrible it is to get everything you want. When we see in Revelation here, these depictions of God's wrath and God's judgment. When we see then this idea of, of, of hell and eternal damnation and just awful torment that will be forever for people, our response is to quietly and not so quietly go, forget that. And we want, we want to, we, 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 God, you owe me an explanation for that. I'm not going to believe in a God who would judge people and condemn people. We scream at, scream out, and we're outraged at the injustice of God's wrath. Guys, there are books. We could fill this whole back wall here with books and recordings of men and women through thousands of years who have said, well, you believe in a God of love, but you, this God is going to torment people and God, that's ridiculous and evil and, and speaking about the injustice of God's wrath. You know what's not anywhere on that shelf? No one out there going, screaming out about the injustice of God's love. No one goes, that's ridiculous. That's offensive to me that God would love people. You know why? Because you think you're awesome. I want to be careful here today too, because I have more things I want to say, but I think I'll put too many sharp edges on this. It's already sharp enough. Um, Some good news. Some good news about God's wrath. Uh, Don't write number one down yet. Just, this is a a big, it's important to understand this. I've heard said this over and over again here for years now. Everybody loves the idea of God's love. God's love, God's love, God's love. We need to have God's love, God's love, God's love. And the idea of ah, God's wrath, hmm, let's not talk about that here. And I want to tell you right now, if all you have is this God of love without any of God's wrath and God's anger, you know what you have? You have a seventh grade girl, little girl crush kind of love. Rom-com pop songs kind of love. A little, oh, God's love. Oh, it just hmm, feels so good. I love, and, and the, which, what? You know, you're seventh grade girls, remember? Love this boy with all your heart. You're going to marry him, what? Two days later, somebody else and somebody else. It moves all the time. See, I'm telling you right now, I got people here in this church. I got uh, a little faith and a little hope who are uh, my granddaughters. I've seen you guys show up here today with your kids. I know for a fact right now, somebody walked up to one of your kids to intentionally hurt them, badly hurt them, and was kind of just flippant about it. Would your response be to be like, well, you know, we just got to let people be people and figure out things. No way. There'd be wrath and judgment. There'd be 
literally hell to pay. Judgment would come on those people for that. You would not just put up with that. This is that if you don't want a God without wrath, because a God without wrath, is not, his love doesn't mean anything. A, a God of wrath and love says, I come against stuff that's going to hurt and damage and destroy people. Number one here, the good news on God's wrath is that God's wrath is eventually finished. In, in Revelation 15, Revelation 15, verse 1, it says seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. In chapter 16, verse 17, we read it already here, but it says after the seventh big blast bowl of wrath is poured out into the air, it says it's done, it's finished. And we've seen in the first judgments, the seal judgments, as the seals opened, it was one quarter of things were, were messed up. And then we get to the trumpet judgments, and it's one-third of stuff is messed up. And we get to these judgments, no more fractions. Now it's all the way. God's judgment will reach its final end point and completion. Number two, God's wrath is certain, and God's wrath is horrible. It's always interesting to me that uh, so many of you, I've, I've been to some of your homes and you have little children and seen the little mobile things or the little paintings of Noah's Ark above little children's uh, where they sleep. Yeah, the time where there were millions of people on the planet and God killed all of them but eight as expressions of his wrath and judgment. We're going to put that... Like, I, no wonder your kids are a mess. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. The Exodus story and then the ultimate expression of God's wrath on the cross. And we guys, we live in a world today. Um, we're going to sing a song today here at the end of the service. Some of you will, who've been at church for a while may recognize it. Awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. And we all go sing our high like this. Uh, and the word awesome, uh, I had a steak this week on Monday night at this restaurant. It was awesome. I've had hot fudge Sundays at Valley's in Las Vegas one time. I still remember it vividly. Awesome. Your awesome caramel, triple soy, whatever macchiato thing that you get. Awesome. The new home improvement project. Awesome. Everything's awesome. Your child in T-ball hit the ball off of the tee. He's so awesome. Awesome doesn't mean anything anymore. And that we call God awesome. We think, oh, God's awesome. Like, Oh, he's not fearful and scary. He's just awesome. In that song, Awesome God, nobody in the churches that sang that song then or sing it today ever sing the words to the verse. All they do, excuse me, all they sing the words to the verse, all they do is the chorus. Our God is an awesome God. Here's, here's what the verses say. It'll be up here on the screen too. It says, when he rolls up his sleeves... He ain't just putting on the Ritz. There's thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. And the Lord wasn't joking when he kicked him out of Eden. It wasn't for no reason that he shed his blood. His return is very close. And so you better be believing that our God is an awesome God. You know what awesome means? Scary, scary awesome. It's a little about when you go to the, when you go to the zoo and see the lion enclosure there. It's awesome, right? And that beast is majestic 
and beautiful and awesome. What happens when all of a sudden the security system goes haywire and the gate comes down? Oh, no, not so. Oh, awesome lion is like awesome, like scare the snot out of you, awesome. This is the God we have. God's wrath, God's awesomeness is certain and horrible. Number three, God's wrath is justified. When we feel like it doesn't fit the crime, it's because the divine acts of God don't match up with my human standards and sensibilities. Uh, it's the idea that you've, I've, I've, people here have said it, well, my God would never judge this or do that. Yeah, it's because it's your God. It's not the true God. It's the God you've made up in your own mind, a figment of your imagination. But it makes you feel good. He's your own personal savior. Hmm. Not the God of the Bible. And, and just because you don't like it or don't agree with it doesn't make it any less true. We've got to stop being preschoolers. Your kids don't like stuff. Oh, I don't like that, Mommy. I don't like it. Like, that, that doesn't make it true. Part of me, if it's true, then you probably got to deal with it, even if you don't like it. And maybe especially because you don't like it, we better reckon with that. And I have stood up here from time to time and talked about difficult places in the Bible like this and kind of apologized for God, going, oh, I wish I wasn't here, which we could skip it, whatever. And I was convicted this week. I saw this line in a book I was reading. It said, we need to stop apologizing for God and start apologizing to him. We don't know who we're dealing with here. And the idea we can shake our fist at God and demand all kinds of things. And you're not right. And you're unjust. You better duck, pal. We have no idea of the purity and the greatness and the holiness of God and the heinousness of our crimes against him. And not talking about people who have done crazy stuff where they have killed people or molested people. I'm talking about the stupid things you did on the way to church this morning, the way you talked to your wife in the car. The lies and the deception that are out there. The crime that is not just against people, but against God. And we think, to quote a modern day prophet, Britney Spears. (laughs) Here's what we think. Oops, I did it again. And God's going to fire back with, yeah, oops, you did it again. And the next line in that song is, you're not that innocent. You're far worse than you think you are. Jonathan Edwards, a famous pastor in the 1700s, has this famous sermon that he preached. You ought to get it and download it. He said, all of us are sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, now the truth is today, our church is growing right now. It would be far, far better, far, far better for us if we just skip this stuff. Because this is just nasty, gnarly, crazy stuff here. But the Bible's going to tell us very, very clearly God's wrath is justified against us because the standards of God are not you compared to anybody else. Because you compared to anybody else, I mean, look around this room, you're better than at least half the people here today. <laughs> you just are. Some of you know some people here go, yeah, I know I'm better than him because I'm married to him. I know what that guy's like. The truth is, says God, God says, I'm not comparing you to anybody else. I'm comparing you to myself, to my absolute perfection. Axe throwing. Anybody ever done axe throwing here? The axe throwing thing where you throw something at the target? What's always fascinating to me is they do axe throwing and they serve alcohol with axe throwing. That's a... <laughs> God's standard is this. Every time you throw that axe, bullseye every time it has to be. Perfection. Some of us throw that axe and it 
hits over here, over here. Sometimes we throw it there and the handle hits and falls to the ground. Sometimes we throw it and it bounces off. Sometimes it hits the plate glass window there. And some of us have taken the axe and we've thrown it around and hit people with it. God is justified with his wrath and judgment against sin. God's wrath is, number four, is delayed. Second Peter 3, 9 says, it feels like, how come God doesn't deal with the evil and stuff in the world? It says, because God's patient. Because there's people right now that don't know him, and he said, I want them to get come to terms with their sin and their need to a Savior and get some things put together, get some things straightened out here. They, they need to do that. And he says, so he says, I'm giving you my wrath in smaller doses to get your attention, to, to get your attention, to see if you will somehow listen up and pay attention. And number five, God's wrath is inescapable. There is no escaping it. Um, sin and rebellion against God will ultimately be judged. There is a reckoning coming. And this is, some of you think, well, I got a parent over here, and they're the tough parent, and blah, over here. But God's going to be over here like my mom or my dad, and like, okay, here, here's your phone back, and we'll let you out of time out early because I don't want to deal with you right now, and all this kind of stuff over here. We think God's going to do that someday, and just go, well... The truth is, everybody's going to deal with God's wrath at, to, to one degree or another. It's inescapable. In John 16, 17, it says, When the seventh angel poured out the wrath of God into the air, there was a proclamation, It is finished. John nineteen thirty. John, who is receiving this vision, is the only one who recounts for us one of the things that Jesus says on the cross. And Jesus on the cross, right before he breathed his last, before they put him in a grave, you know what he said? It is finished. On the cross, Jesus experiences not just torture for cru- and crucifixion, because people have been tortured to death worse than Jesus was. That's been far worse for some people. Now, not everybody. It was graphic and terrible and terrifying what he Went through, but the terror of the cross was not the physical torture. It was that in a moment of time, the eternal wrath of the Creator God was poured out for your sin and my sins on the innocent on His innocent Son. Which is what happens in that moment on the cross when He screams out, "My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me?" Remember what hell is? Abandonment forsakenness. God, now you and I have experienced the forsakenness of God. We've lived in this weird rebellion against God. Imagine infinite creation being eternal relationship with God and all of a sudden that's gone and it's gone in the sense of it's gone and it's done and this is forever. Jesus experiences that on the cross at some level and then he screams out, it is finished and it is finished does not mean It's finished, thank God, it's done. It's finished is what they would stamp on bills of sale on a real estate transaction saying, paid in full. That the wrath and the judgment of God that happens in this seventh seal harkens back, seventh bowl here, harkens back to a time of judgment on the cross and looks forward to the time when that judgment will finally have reached its full expression and completion and says this, that the wrath of God was fully, fully satisfied. He doesn't have to hold anything back because he poured it out on his son. I'm going to put a quote up here, and we're going to leave it up for a bit because some of you want to get a phone out and take a picture of it or give you a chance to write it down. It says this, There is no refuge 
from the judging God, but there is refuge in the loving God, in the, in the, uh, in the judging God, is that God is the judge. You're never going to escape that wrath. It's coming. But because he pronounces the sentence and says, now I'm going to pour out that sentence, he steps off of that bench and into your place. He says, I'll take it all for you. As we wrap some things up here on judgment and hell, just some things to keep in mind. First of all, finally, don't be excited about hell. See, here's what happens sometimes. So those of you, especially church kind of people, will say this from time to time. People will stop me. If I don't tell you this, some of you are going to go, it's about dang time we talked about hell. Because no pastors in America, we're all just preaching this soft little, frilly little gospel of a weak Jesus and all that kind of stuff. It's about dang time we talked about hell. Way to go. And you're kind of gleeful and excited about, yeah, we're talking about hell. If that's you today, go get some therapy. Because the truth about if, there, if hell is real, as it's described in the Bible, some of you are going there. Some people in my family are going there. I was at the gym this week. I was at a, a coffee place this week, and I just looked around a couple of times. I was kind of reading through some stuff going, I wonder about him and her. And them and that person who checks, gets my coffee a couple of times. Like, so we're not excited about hell. We're moved to action when we recognize that this is not just... Because there's way more important things to do on a Sunday morning than just do religious goods and services and come here and sing some songs and let somebody yell at us for a half hour, 45 minutes. Eternity is at stake. Now... When you get moved on this stuff, and we hear a graphic message on this, uh, I've done this as a youth pastor. I, I've heard pastors and preachers do this where we get the thing out and we talk about hell and get the lighter out and put that over your hand like this. Imagine it's your whole body. And imagine worms eating you and you never die. They're just consuming you. And imagine darkness where you're falling forever and ever and ever trying to scare the hell out of people, literally. Try to scare them into following Christ. Second thing here, don't lead with hell. <laughs> don't start with hell. Don't start with trying to scare people into it. Because you can scare people into it. And once the emotion goes away, they're done. N- nobody's ever devoted to Christ because they got scared into devotion to Christ and loving Jesus. You lead with the gospel of reckless love to ridiculous sinners. You lead with there is a, a, a God who, who loves you. And, and the, the words to how great thou art, that third verse, that when I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. You start with the love of God. Now, hell might enter into that conversation here. And then for some of us today, in our culture, maybe even some of you sitting here today going, I don't like all this stuff about hell. Why can't we talk about something more positive? Why talk about how to manage my family and conflict and difficulty and improve my marriage or help me with reconciling something? Why can't we do more practical stuff? And it's like, I don't like all this talk about hell. And my whole deal is I don't like it either, so don't go. Don't go. God's made a way out for you. Don't don't go. And and here's the most important. Here's the crazy thing, too. When, When it comes to all this talk on hell, I hope... And the deepest part of my soul 
that somehow I've misinterpreted the Bible wrongly today. That maybe there isn't hell. Maybe that's just annihilation and you just disappear and you go to the grave and you pass out of the I don't think the Bible tells us that at all. But I'm telling you this, even if that's true, even if there's no hell to escape, Jesus is amazing anyway. You should love Jesus not to get your get out of hell free card. Because, see, if all Jesus is is a get out of hell free card, you don't love that guy. You go, well, what's the bare minimum I have to do to get out of hell? There's no devotion and love for Christ. And what Jesus is calling us to is discover and follow him, to love him and serve him with all of our hearts. That never happens by fear and, and terrorizing people into that. It just doesn't. So we need to love and follow and serve Jesus. As the band comes up now, we're going to take some time now and sing some songs. It's tricky here today on a message on hell. Like, there are no great inspiring songs about hell and judgment. Like at a rave or a mosh pit, maybe. <laughs> Out there. But, but today, there's no judgment. There's no escape from the judging God. But there is escape in the judging God. He's made the way out for you. So we're going to sing about that escape. The way that God took hell for us so we don't have to. You may have people in your life right now that you care about. People that have not come to terms with their sin and their need for a savior. Our prayer team is at the back of the house today. And we want to go back there and pray with them today for a particular person or persons that you really want to come to know and discover and follow Jesus. That may be you today. You may be sitting here today going, it's just time for me to start that journey of stepping over that line of faith saying, yes, I believe that what Jesus did, he took hell for me so I don't have to. And I say yes to loving him and serving and following him the rest of my life. So if that's you, you can close the deal with Jesus right there at your seat. I encourage you to go back to the back there and talk with somebody and say, can you just, can we just pray here right now about that? And I felt even compelled a little bit today because there may be some of you that have some people in your life that don't know Christ yet. And whether it's right there at your seat or you want to take a moment here to come on your knees before God right here on the steps here and spend a moment or two with God praying for them, do that. And then in the corners of the room, there is communion. It's symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus, bread and juice. We're on that cross 2,000 years ago. He said it's finished because he offered his body and his blood and took the wrath and judgment that you deserved. And you can celebrate that today. That we have a God who loved you that much that he would take, he would go to hell and through hell for you. Jesus, today, yeah, God, I don't know. Some of us need this stuff to land and get countersunk into our soul. Some of us, some of this doesn't need to stick at all. I got whatever you want to do right now. But what we do today here is we proclaim with our singing now that you're not just cool and you're not just amazing, that you truly are awesome. And that's why we worship you today.